We all want to belong somewhere. We want that, that, that feeling of being a part of something. For many of us, the first time we notice this is when we're in middle school or junior high. We start to try to figure out, what is it? Who, who am I? What, where do I belong? And if we're honest, it doesn't get over in middle school. It continues on. We're looking for a place where we belong to something bigger than us. There's all sorts of places that people find this. They find this community. They find this place of belonging. If anything, the internet has actually made it even more easy to find people that like the same thing as you. But the thing about it is is that it's not really the kind of community that we're made for. There is a kind of community that we're made for that we can only find in one place based around, around one single thing. And that is Christ, our Lord and Savior. So we are looking at the gospel. We're continually looking at this word, which is a buzzword. It's a word that gets attached to all sorts of stuff. But for these next few weeks, we're going to be looking at how the gospel, how the good news that Jesus has broken down the wall that we have erected so that we can have relationship with our God. That's the good news. And last week we spent some time looking at it, and we have this this flywheel dynamic up here. And the gospel's the dead center. And as the gospel presses more and more into us, we see the fruit of the gospel. And so we're going to be looking at four of those fruit. If you're interested in knowing more about this dynamic and things like that, we have some little booklets out there on the table so you can see more about it. We also have this on our website. This isn't anything unique to us. We just, we just kind of put together what God already did and had a little picture for it. So today, we're going to talk about how when the gospel takes root in our lives, it produces a community that also promotes and celebrates the gospel. So that's where we're going to be. And uh, Michael, thank you for reading Romans 15. If you will turn there in your Bibles. Our focus is going to be on verses 5, 6, and 7, but i got to set it up a little bit because 1 through 4 get us to 7. So the focus of this passage is verse 7. So we're going to start at the end of the story, and then we're going to get to that end at the very end. So verse 7 says this, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So that word, therefore, is a code word. As we read our Bibles, you know, it's kind of like a detective story. What is it that he is arguing? You know, especially when we look at Paul's letters and we're tracing this argument out. The therefore is saying, this is my conclusion, a conclusion of an argument. In a math equation, it would be the equal sign. The therefore is saying, what comes next is the conclusion, the sum. This is what we want to get to. So Paul is teaching us how to have harmony, unity, fellowship, or better put, community. He's telling us how to have that. And his conclusion is we need to welcome as Christ welcomed us. But we've got to get to there. So let's walk through this passage. There are two sections in this passage. The first one is verses 1 through 4, which is that the strong must bear with the weak by not pleasing themselves. The strong must bear with the weak by not pleasing themselves. In verse 5, Paul breaks into a prayer right in the middle of his teaching, and it makes me wonder, like, if Paul is... So Paul dictated all of his letters. 
He's sitting there. He had what's called an amanuensis, which just basically means he had someone do the writing for him. So Paul's talking, and this amanuensis is writing, and Paul just gets right into a prayer, and the amanuensis writes it down. and probably goes, did, did you want to include that, Paul? And Paul goes, yes, without a doubt, include this prayer. So we're going to see this prayer, and then we get to our conclusion. What does it mean to welcome someone as Christ has welcomed us? So let's dig into verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So Paul has been spending all of chapter 14 about this this problem within the church family, within the family of God. Verse 19 of chapter 14, he says, let us pursue what makes peace and mutual upbuilding. Verse 21, he says, it's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, before we take a passage out of its context and say, after lunch today, there's no meat and no drinking of wine on the menu, that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is there was a, there was a, deb- a, a debate, a, 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 a little bit of a problem in the church. Some of the new believers who Paul classifies as weak, not weak in that they don't believe fully, but because their faith is brand new. And he says, for some of them, eating this meat, which would be meat sacrificed to idols, is going to cause them to stumble. Others, drinking wine, which is usually associated with a religious, non-Christian thing, is going to cause them to stumble. So Paul says, put aside anything that would cause your brother to stumble. Just because you can go, I can enjoy this T-bone steak without worrying about where it comes from, don't enjoy it if it means your brother is going to struggle and is going to potentially sin from it. So Paul is laying this out, and I want to focus on that last bit, and not to please ourselves. We must remember that Paul or God loves a cheerful giver, not a begrudging one. Whether it's giving of money, whether it's giving of time, or whether it's giving of, you know what, I'm not going to eat that steak today. I'm not going to partake of that wine today because I know it's going to bother my neighbor. Now, if we think about this, this is not the natural way of the world, right? The strong should be able to do what they want. I mean, the mature Christians should set the stage and all you immature, weak should get in line. That's how our world believes. All of the strong should be in charge. What's really interesting is we've kind of got this little backlash to that in our world right now, don't we? But what's ironic about it is that the strong and the powerful are now telling the other strong and powerful not to use their strength and power. So it's really interesting. It's not the people with no platform and no strength that are standing up and saying, you guys with strength should stop it. No, it's other strong people saying, stop using your privilege, stop using your power. Now, no matter how you view power and strength dynamics in our world, Paul's point here is that you can love your brother and sister by putting them first, putting them ahead of you, not pleasing yourself, but pleasing others. And we see this in verse two. Paul doesn't just let us go with, don't please yourself. He says, no, that's the negative. The positive is here in verse two. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. This is Paul saying, this is the positive way to do it. It's not just don't please yourself and you're walking around some kind of a stoic, never having emotions, Dr. Spock type of feel. No, instead, it's aim to please your neighbor. 
This is echoing Leviticus 19.18, which Paul actually quoted earlier in Romans 13. This doesn't mean love your neighbor because of what you can get from them, right? Like, Like we're all a part of the neighborhood watch, so I'll watch your house if you watch my house. That's not what this is talking about. This is saying, I love you even if I get nothing from it. Because my goal is to build you up, and it's for your good. We must understand, though, Paul does kind of balance this out. In Galatians 1.10, Paul says, I will not please man. Wait a sec, Paul, you just said you're to please your neighbor. What Paul's saying here is he's saying, I am not going to water down the gospel to make you happy. If it comes between choosing this is what glorifies God and this is what makes you happy, I'm going to choose the glorifying of God over what makes you happy. But ideally, every single person needs to be able to glorify the Lord. We need to get them there, and that should be our focus. So the two goals that Paul says, for his good and to build him up. Now, if you're a parent, you know that sometimes you have to deny your kids things that they think are good. Sometimes you have to even deny them things that they need. Need, right? Same goes for our relationships with our neighbors. We we need to build them up and we need to point them to the thing that actually matters. The thing that actually will save them for eternity. It's not about just making them feel good. It's not about them looking at us and going, wow, they're great neighbors. No, it's about where are we pointing them. If you want ideas on how to do this, over the last year, we've been doing a mailing list through newlifenw.com. It's called the Kingdom Initiative. And every morning, you'll get a little email with just different ideas of how to bless your neighbor. The one from this week said this. It says, do you have more than you need? Is your freezer full? Is your garden producing too much? Why don't you give it to your neighbor? There you go. Loving your neighbor, pleasing your neighbor for his or her good. And you can subscribe to that, and that'll be in your email. But I, I know you all are smart. You can figure this out. How do we please our neighbor for their good? And then how do we build them up in such a manner that they see Christ? See, being a Christian is not, I do what I want. Being a Christian is not, I always do what they want. Being a Christian is, I do what glorifies the Lord and builds up his church. One of the the Puritan writers said this, and I love this. Once you say yes to the faith in Jesus and accept his blueprint for the fullness of your life, The whole world can no longer revolve around you or your needs or your gratifications. Instead, you must revolve around the world, seeking to bandage its wounds, loving dead men into life, finding the lost, wanting the unwanted, leaving behind, and listen to this, leaving behind all the selfish, parasitical concerns that drain all of our time and energy. Listen to that. It says we need to rid ourselves of all the self-focus that is sucking away our time and energy and become other-focused. Because here's the promise. God meets us in our self-denial. When we go, it's not about me, it's about the other, I'm going to please them, that's where God comes in and meets us. Because there is nothing more glorifying to God than saying, God, you will meet my needs I'm going to help be the way you're meeting that person's needs. There's nothing more glorifying than that. When we go, I have to meet my needs, you're saying, God, you don't got this. You can run the whole nebulas thing throughout the universe, and you can keep the, you know, the sun shining, but when it comes to my life, oh, I need to be in charge. 
It doesn't work that way. And we see this in Christ's example. Paul doesn't want us to take his word for it. Verse 3, For Christ did not please himself. As it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So that first part starts with the word for, which gives us a clue. This is the ground. This is the reason why we should do what he said in verses 1 and 2. Again, we're trying to follow Paul's argument. So Paul's saying the reason why you should do this is because this is what Jesus did. And if we think about it, right, Jesus puts aside his power and privileges, which are infinitely greater than anything we could give up, and comes down and becomes a man and dies for our sins. We have nothing in our lives. There is nobody on earth who's ever existed, even Solomon in all of his riches, that can give up enough to even come within a decimal point of being even a full percent of, of what he gave up, what Jesus gave up for us. They can't even touch it. I mean, Elon Musk, right? He can't even touch. If he gave up all of his money, God would be like, yeah, yeah, you're not even close to what Jesus gave up. So giving up our little freedoms to please others is small by comparison. Paul wants us to see that. Not only that, but Paul wants us to see that this is not just a one-time thing. This is not just something Jesus did. In the second part, we see this quote, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is a quote from Psalm 69.9. And you know that word reproach is not something we normally use. It means an insult. It means to, to taunt them, to put them down. This is actually a quote that all four Gospels use in explaining what Jesus is doing on the cross. And so what they're doing is they're tying it all together and they're saying all of Scripture is about pleasing the other, not pleasing the self. But Paul's going even deeper. Paul's saying if Jesus can handle this, then we need to handle that. And, you know, and, and Jesus points to this really clearly. When the Pharisees are trying to trip him up about what's the greatest commandment, what does Jesus say? He says the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, when we do both of those things, there's no more time in your day to love self. Now, I, I have heard some Bible teachers get up and say, well, before you can love someone else, you need to learn how to love yourself. Can we just be honest? That's utter nonsense right? You don't, have to you don't have to teach a child how to be a narcissist and be focused on self, right? When, when babies are born, they do three things well, cry, poop, and focus on self. Can I get an amen? I mean, come on, right? So we, we don't need to teach ourselves how to love ourselves. We already do it way too much. Jesus' point is the way that you're loving yourself should not be, the way that you're loving yourself should be the model for how much you're going to love that other person. And if we did that, wow, what would this place look like? What is amazing, though, is that our world can't make sense of people loving people for no reason. I don't know if you guys saw this, but this, it was like last week, there was a Little, Little League World Series game. And there was a little boy, his name was Isaiah Jarvis. He's standing in the batter's box, and the pitcher throws at him, nails him right in the head, knocks him over. Kid goes head over heels, right? Stands up, and of course, what does he do? Does he do what all the big kids do, the big pampered baby kids in Major League Baseball? Does he run to the mound? Nope. He shakes off the dust, the trainer checks him out, he goes to first base. 
And here's the amazing part. He gets to first base, and Zay is standing there, and he looks out, and he sees that the pitcher has got his head down and is crying. The pitcher's crying because he just hit a kid in the head. He's in the most important game of his entire life, and he's just won, hurt his team, and maybe hurt this kid really badly. And the pitcher is having a hard time. And then this is what Zay does. Zay walks to the mound and goes over and hugs the pitcher and says, you're doing great. Keep it up. You're doing great. One of the news stations says this. It says the whole scene was the opposite of what you normally see in baseball. Usually the pitcher will go and check on the injured batter, but instead this blonde, Isaiah Jarvis from Oklahoma, who had a small bruise on the side of his head, goes to the mound to care for the emotional needs of this pitcher. And if you've seen the video, they pan across the crowd, and there's not very many dry eyes watching this 12-year-old loving someone who's an enemy, loving someone who he wants to beat because he was pleasing him. This is so foreign in our world. This idea of pleasing the other, loving the neighbor, building them up. It's as rare as a unicorn sighting. Our world doesn't make sense of it. News, news shows across the nation. He was interviewed on ESPN. The YouTube video of it, there's multiple versions of it, but some of them are well over a million views. But here's the best part of this story, and this is why I included it. The pitcher was asked, well, what did you learn? What's the lesson you got from, from this? And again, this is, a, this is a 12 or 13 year old. Listen to what he says. I think the lesson that we should learn is that we should care for other people. Like when they're down, you should care for them and try to build them up. I mean, that's right here what we're seeing in this passage. He saw exactly what this kind of love does. It builds it up. He had experienced it, and he said, now that I've seen what this guy has done for me, this is how we should live our lives. We should build up others for their good. And again, Paul doesn't want us to, to forget that this is the biblical model. And we see verse 4. Again, with another four in front of it. So Paul's saying, this is the reason why. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. He's talking about God's word. At this point, it would have been the Old Testament for Paul. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. See, we please others because our hope is not in that they're going to scratch my back like I just scratched theirs. My hope's not in that I can provide for myself. My hope is in the fact that when I please others, which is what the Lord has commanded me to do, he will take care of my needs. I love that. This is what the Bible is. The Bible is our foundation. This, this passage is telling us we have a picture of what it means to do something for someone's good and to build them up. It's all throughout Scripture. It's all throughout Scripture. But see, the world gets this backwards. What does the world do? The world says, you know, I should choose my neighbors. I don't necessarily like the ones living by me, so maybe I need to, maybe I need to get someone else in there. Or we say, you know what, I I'm only going to love this group of people. What's really ironic about that is actually you're not even loving that person because if you look at that person, that person looks a lot like you, right? What benefit is it to love those who love you or look just like you? or have been through the same life experiences you have. So 
We see this, right? In our world, we see groups all over the place based on life experiences, based on identity, based on a cause, based on your needs, based on a social position, based on your like of some random anime show that only shows in Japan. We get all these groups that come around that. This is called comfort-based grouping. This is where we come together because it makes me feel good, it makes me feel better about me what we have in common. What's ironic about these groups is that if we have them in the church, we don't need the church to have them, do we? People can get together based on age, based on socioeconomic, based on interests, based on married, not married, kids, no kids, college, no college. You don't need the gospel for it. You don't need Jesus for it. So Paul's trying to tell us here, and I think this is why Paul breaks into this prayer at this point, is because he's going, this is it. Y'all need to get this. We must be unified as a church. And we must be unified not around the fact that we all live in and around Gladstone, but that we are united in Christ. And so Paul prays this. And I think Paul's praying this not only for himself and for the Romans, but also for us. So let's look at Paul's prayer for community. This is what he says. May the God of endurance and encouragement. See, Paul, Paul was thinking about how great Scripture is. He saw that in verse 4. He says, yeah, Scripture's great. It's for endurance and encouragement. And he goes, which is just like the God I serve. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul just laying it right out there. This is what we would call a benediction, bene, good, diction, word. It's what we say as we're leaving the church service. This is me praying a word over you. Paul doesn't, doesn't finish, the, finish his teaching this way. He just can't help it. He just prays it right in the middle. And what does he pray for? He prays for harmony and unity and community. So look at that phrase. He says, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. What does this mean? What it means is the connection, the thing that puts us together in this room, in this church, in the community of believers is not our age, our demographics, our race, our sex. It's Christ and Christ alone. It is the only way to come together. And see, th you know, th this, this gets our mind around what matters most. So we're going on a little bunny trail here. What motivated Jesus to do what he did? Why did Jesus come? What was his purpose? Some people will say, well, he came to love people. Well, he did. Some people will say, well, he came to save people. Also true. Came to help people. Yep. Came to heal people. Of course. But all of that, all of those actions that he did were pointing to a greater reality. And that greater reality is the glory and the holiness of God, his Father. We must constantly see that Jesus' point is he wants to get us, not with the, hey, you took care of my needs. No, he wants us to see the jaw-dropping glory of the God of the universe and how amazing it is that we now can have relationship with him. That's why he got on the people all the time. What, you guys want more bread and fish? Come on, get what this is about. Jesus is here to glorify the Lord. 
The author of Hebrews gets this. He says, Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. John 17, 4, Jesus, as he's praying, he says, Lord, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me. Jesus' goal is to glorify God. And we are called to be like him. So we are called to glorify God in all that we do. If the gospel's at the center of all that we do, it radiates out to everyone around us. Paul is praying for that. Paul is saying, you need to be of one mind, one voice, glorifying the Lord. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, we don't do it through church programs. We don't do it through relational techniques and strategies. We don't do it through any sort of external technique. Instead, what we do is we do it on the daily, denying ourselves and picking up our cross and saying, it is my goal today to please everyone else but me. That's what he's laying out here. Because when we look at those two greatest commandments, what are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. One author said, We should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury. Instead, we should recognize it as a spiritual necessity. Not something we add on to our private quiet time with God. Because God has made us so that our fellowship with himself is fed by our fellowship with other believers. It requires that we be fed so constantly and deeply and enriching us, we must have fellowship with our believers. Our togetherness and our commitment transcends all natural bounds. It's not a nice thing to have at church. We've got community. It's nice to have. No, it's necessity. It has to be here because it points to one thing. It points to the gospel. And the gospel is what should be at the center of all of our lives. So it most definitely should be at the center of our community here together. So when we look at churches, there's usually two kinds of community that happens. We have one called gospel plus. And this is where we say, we get together and we do this thing and the gospel's kind of added on. It's sprinkled on. Then we have one called gospel revealing. This is the one where the gospel is the reason why this group exists. In the gospel plus, we just kind of add Jesus on the side. You know, it's like, we're going to build community. We're going to have, this is just going to be a singles group. And we're just going to have singles together and we'll kind of throw in the gospel here and there, right? That's not what we see in the, God, in the Bible. It's not what we see all the way through. Now, the reason why this is popular is because it works, right? You can grow numbers if you say, hey, we're going to have a group of people that are all the same. Come be together, and we'll talk about Jesus. That all the same is very, very attractive. But it's not the biblical model. Let me show you. Let's think about the disciples for a second. Man, would you have liked to have been around the fire with those guys? I mean, you got fishermen. Now you're like, okay, but they all fish. Yeah, but here's the deal. They were from different fishing families. So guess what? One group's fishing, the other group's fishing. No, this is our waters. Well, you don't have control of the waters, but this is where we always fish. My dad's fished here and his dad. it, it It was like family warfare. So you've got clans of fishermen together. Not only that, there's these two other guys. Remember them? We got Matthew, what's his job? Oh, he's a tax collector. No big deal, right? IRS guy? No, no, no. He's working for a a, a nation, Rome, that has subjugated the Jews. He is a hated individual. And you know what group hated him the most? 
Oh, this guy over here named Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was a guy who was a part of a group who said, we will die to get Rome out of here. That's how serious they took their rebellion. I mean, our, our founding fathers had nothing on the Zealots, right? So these two guys, these warring families, not to mention merchants who would look at fishermen and go, man, they're smelly. They're not, they're not good people. So Jesus brings this motley crew together and he says, yep, this is my crew. This crew is going to change the world. And did they ever? Did they change anything prior to Christ's death? Nope. Christ comes, he dies, he goes to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes, and then it says they tur ups turned upside down the world. See, the thing is, the gospel must be central. Anytime you add anything to the gospel, you lose it. Anything you add something to Christ, you lose Christ. Christ doesn't say, I am a way, I am mostly the way, I'm three-fourths the way. He says, I am the way. There is no other way. And I know that's offensive to our culture. That's offensive to us. But it's what Christ says. He is the whole way. So the community we're called to have is called gospel-revealing community. And this is where we get together, and it's not about our comfort zone. It's about being uncomfortable. It's about being inconvenienced. It's about being around people that you would probably never, ever be around if it weren't for Jesus Christ. Because it's a picture of what heaven's going to be like. It doesn't say most of the tribes. It doesn't say only the white tribes. It doesn't say only the western tribes. It says from every tribe and nation and every tongue is going to be at the celebration in heaven. D.A. Carson nails it. I love this. Ideally, the church is not made up of natural friends. It's made up instead of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, not common race, common income, common politics, common ancestry, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. In light of this, our churches should be a band of natural enemies who come together through Jesus Christ to love one another. This is the picture of what we're supposed to be. Have you guys gotten this yet? That, that Jesus was here on earth, right? And he taught in parables. Parable means to put alongside. He would tell a story alongside a biblical truth. We are meant to be walking parables. When we go out into the world, they don't go, oh, they're from Portland, that's why they're weird. They go, they're, they're so weird, they wouldn't fit in Portland. Something's wrong with those people. What is it? But look at how they care for each other. Look at how they love. Look at how they do life. And they go, There's, what is that? And that's what it means to live the gospel, is that we are a living parable to all that we encounter. Now, when, when we don't live that way, when we break up into our own groups and we do things by people that we like that are just like us, we're teaching something to the world. We're saying, we don't really need God. As a matter of fact, it's us saying, God, you know what? We don't need your help with this. It's like saying, hey, God, you know, we'll call you when we need you, but you just kind of go do your own thing. We'll call you when we're, we're ready. You know, just, you know, God, we'll get together and meet in our group, but when we pray at the end for things we want, please come and be there. That's not the picture of what the Bible says. Now, don't get me wrong. You can still hang out with people that are like you. 
It's not sinful to do that. As a matter of fact, some of you are believers because somebody a lot like you, but different enough that you didn't know what was going on, brought you to a church or led you to the Lord. So it's not sinful to be around people you like. But what I'm saying is, is when we are a community as a church, we have to work, we have to constantly remind ourselves of the gospel. That means we must be a unified group around God's word. And we'll talk about how how we do that here in a minute. The visible bond of our unity displays the invisible gospel to those who are looking. One author writes this, and this this is just too good, I have to share it. Our new society of the church is not a mutual admiration society. It's a shared admiration society. Our affection for each other is derivative. It's derived from worshiping the God of the universe who saved us out of a million different communities into his family. Our identity no longer stems from our families of origin, our professions, our interests, ambitions. Instead, it stems from Christ. Now, this is the, this is the, this is the pure gold right here. We are Christians. And so me, as an urban American of the professional class, I have more in common with my working class, rural Sudanese brother in Christ than I have with my non-Christian blood brother. See, we gotta get that in our minds. We gotta get that our connection is based on Christ and Christ alone. So how do we wrap our minds around what this looks like? Well, this is where Paul takes us to the conclusion. And this is where he says, the means by which we get this community is welcoming like Christ did. Verse seven, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the application. Paul made it really clear. He said, this is what you gotta do. As a matter of fact, this is the only imperative in verses five through six. Imperative means he's telling us what to do. And it says the word welcome. In Greek, this is the word proslambethesno which means to welcome people, but intensely, all right? We get that word welcome. It's like you can say, hi, welcome, and they walk right by you. This word means you welcome them and you bring them in and they're actively with you from that point on. If we think about what Christ did to us, we really are, we're praying that Christ's welcome wasn't like, hey, good to see you. It's, hey, I'm taking you all the way into heaven. We want to be with him and this is the command that we see here. It means we welcome each other in a way that makes God look glorious. When we welcome someone who is different than us, when we welcome someone who we wouldn't naturally be friends with, and we bring them in, and we say, come here, sit at the table, take my spot, let me show you, this is what life looks like here at New Life Gladstone. When we make that the way we do things, we make the gospel look glorious. We're welcoming each other, people that are different than you, Watch what happens. The gospel, the God of the gospel gets the glory. Now, it's tough. I, 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 won't, I won't sugarcoat it. It's tough to be around people that are different than you. It's hard, generationally, ethnically, tastes in music and food, leisure, the things we like to do. It's hard for us to interact with each other. But when we get that the gospel connects us with these people, it breaks down all the barriers. Let me, let me give you an example of this. Last March, I met two guys. Their names are Kenny King and William Marshall. And they live in Sykeston, Missouri. Sykeston, Missouri was the last place in the continental United States to have a lynching. 
It is a city that is completely divided literally by train tracks. 40% live on this side and they're 99.9% .9 African American, 60% lives on this side, and they are 99.9% .9 white. Kenny had a church in the black population because he's black, and William had one in the white. And both of them were going, our city looks way different than our church. Our city looks different. We're, our church is 100% white. This church over here is 100% black. What, well, how, this is not representing what God is doing. There's no miracle here. White people hang out with white people. Black people hang out with black people. There's no miracle. And then the Lord led William and Kenny to each other. They bumped into each other at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes event, and they started meeting together, and they started praying together, and they realized they both saw that the gospel was not on display in their churches because their church was full of like people. And so you know what they did? They closed both their churches and they made a new church together, which they co-pastor. And to this day, that church runs about 45% African-American and 55% Caucasian. And it is a glorious thing to behold. But let me, show, let me tell you, that, that's awesome, right? Okay, so we got to manufacture some ethnic diversity, you know, when Gladstone's like, you know, 78% white. we got to figure out how to, that's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying here, though, is what I saw in William and Kenny's eyes. Let me, let me continue the story. So Kenny got up first, and he's telling the, telling the story of this city in Missouri. And as he's talking, William, who's sitting right behind him, is looking at Kenny and watching him share their story of what the Lord's done. And I'll tell you what, in his eyes, I saw something I've never seen at that intensity. I saw a love for that man that just blew me away. I had to like afterwards go up and say, okay, I missed like 10 minutes of your talk. Uh, could I get those notes? Because I was looking at William and man, that guy loves that guy. That guy sees him as a brother. I mean, I, I've been around brothers. I have two boys that, that are brothers. I don't ever see that kind of love between them. <laughs> right? And even when they grow out of the, the butting of heads of being younger, that kind of love is not normal. And definitely not normal with two people on different sides of the tracks. What accounts for it? Is it William and Kenny being really progressive? Is it their politics? Is it their socioeconomic? Is it their style of worship? Nope. The only thing that connects those two men is their love for Jesus Christ. And they both reflect it to each other because of the gospel. They don't worry about pleasing self. Because you know what? That was hard. And I, I'll, I, on our Monday morning gleanings, I'll put a link in to their story. And they have they wrote it all down. It's, it was hard. I mean, they're two different cultures. Yeah, they're in the same city, but they're very different. But the blending of them and seeing that, the way God brings those two together is phenomenal. So how has Christ accepted us? This is the model of how we accept others. How has Christ welcomed us in? This is how we welcome others. Spurgeon says, Christ did not receive us because we were perfect or because there was no fault in us or because he was hoping to gain something. Not at all. In loving condescension, he covered our faults, sought our good, and welcomed us into a relationship with him. This is the way we are to welcome others into this gathering. If the sinless, perfect God can lower himself 
to please us, to welcome us, we can lower ourselves to welcome those who come in. If a 12-year-old can forgive a pitcher who just beamed him in the head, if a black man and a white man who had both experienced racism in their lives can love each other and build a church off of that, we can build a community here that bridges every possible gap in this neighborhood that we're in, in this part of the country that we're in. So welcoming and pleasing go together. So one of the ways we can welcome another is as Christ welcomed us is by making God look glorious. Deny my preferences and put the other person's first. So my job, your job, as a follower of Christ is to aim to please the other. And when we do that as a group, when we as a group come together and we're constantly pleasing the other, it doesn't make sense to the world. And that points to the supernaturalness of the gospel. So how will the gospel be seen in our community if all we do is gather together like the rest of the world does? It won't. Our community is supposed to be supernatural. It's supposed to be supernatural. People are supposed to go, why is that 20-year-old hanging out with that 90-year-old? Why is that rich person hanging out with that person over there who doesn't have a college education? How does this work? Why is this single person with this married couple? What doesn't make sense? And we're supposed to say, good, because that's what the gospel is. The gospel doesn't make sense. So where do we find this in our church? Well, we find it in two places. We have a women's Bible study, and we have life groups both of which are going to be starting up here in a few weeks. We have a life group board out there. We have uh, announcements all over the place about when women's ministry is starting up. And I'll tell you what, one of the cool things about the life group that I'm a part of, that I was a part of, is, is that there were people that were in their early 20s, and there were people who've now just turned 90, right? We've got people on either spectrum. We've got people who've never had kids. We've got people that did have kids. And that was just a few of the differences that we had. This is where we invite people in. Sometimes life groups are a better place to invite people in because they get to see the community in a microcosm. Here it's easy to be like, well, I assume they're all the same. But when we bring people into that life group, when they see that and they go, what on earth? How did that group ever get together? And we go, well, let me tell you how this group gave together because that's the only hope for any kind of peace in this world is the gospel to make inroads in everywhere around us. So, there's opportunities here for community. There's opportunities for you to display the gospel. But hear me on this. You need to be in a life group. Why? Because that life group needs you. They need your differences to point through them to the gospel. And you need that life group. Because it makes you rub shoulders with people that you wouldn't normally rub shoulders with. It makes you be around people that you would not normally be around save for Jesus Christ. Is it going to be hard? Yep. Is it going to be awkward? Yeah. Are there going to be some times where there's that quiet and you're like, what are we going to talk about? Well, I'll give you a hint. Why don't you talk about Jesus? Go for it. You both know him, and you'll find that you're going to have more and more in common. So there's my admonition for you. The gospel produces community and it's the way that the gospel shows that it is true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, and thank you that we can come together and gather together like this. Lord, thank you that we're not all the same. 
Lord, thank you that we have all sorts of ways that we bump into each other and rub into each other that are all softened by your gospel, by your son's death on the cross in our place. We praise you, Lord, that we can be connected that way. We praise you that your um, heavens are going to be filled with those who know you from every tribe and tongue and nation. Lord, thank you for that picture that you've given us. Thank you for that goal, and thank you for providing the means by which that happens. Lord, thank you for your son and his death on the cross. Lord, help us to, to get it. Help us to understand it today. In Jesus' name, amen.